This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtTactic.com. What an incredible past couple of weeks we've had with the auctions in New York. So what should we make of these results? What do the numbers say? We've done all of the analysis for you in our post-war and contemporary and impressionist and modern auction analysis reports now available on ArtTactic.com. We take a look at the performance of the entire market, we even break it down by each auction house, and then we go into detail about all of the artists in the sales. If you really want to get a pulse as to what happened over the past few weeks and where the art market is at the moment, don't miss these reports. You can view them now on ArtTactic.com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Kelly Crow, reporter covering the art market for the Wall Street Journal. We had a marathon of auctions in New York over the last few weeks. We really appreciate Kelly joining us to help us analyze these major sales, as well as their impact on the art market moving forward. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Are you able to breathe a little bit now that the sales have finally ended? Yeah, I'm starting to decompress slowly. (laughs) I think the story of the week was the incredible prices achieved for several artworks that just blew well past their estimates. It feels like there was a significant price shift in the middle of the market for several artists. And you also actually identified this trend in one of your pieces in the Wall Street Journal right after the sales. So do we understand what exactly happened and why? How much of this has to do with the material offered versus maybe shifts in the economy? Well, I feel like we've just had a little bit of a virtuous circle happening because you've had several seasons of increasing confidence, um, steadily higher prices, um, sort of with huge trophy pictures doing well, and sometimes the middle sort of lagging behind. That was sort of the story of the last cycle, but every, you know, every... Every market cycles differently, and I think one of the defining characteristics of what we're seeing now is that there's just um, so many people in the world who can spend um, $10, $20 million on a picture. There's only a finite number of people who can spend over 100 So even though the $100 million pictures are the ones that really sort of snag a lot of the press early on and certainly bring in a lot of the bidders, I think in the end there's just such a bigger pool of people who are willing to splurge, you know, at especially under $5 million, and then you get another tranche sort of under 10 and under 20 I mean, so the material at those prices um, just did really well. You know, you also have the confidence telling sellers that now is a good time to buy. So you get sellers like Morton Mandel, who's still alive, basically having an estate sale ahead of time, you know, selling off his stuff, and it did really well, sort of beating estimates, sort of people looking at the market, taking their pulse of it and deciding, you know, now is a good time to sell and a good time to buy. So that kind of feeds into itself and resulted in some really strong sell-through rates in the day sales, some of the strongest I've ever seen. I mean, a 90-plus a 90 sell-through rate in a Phillips day sale. I mean, I don't know, you know, in all my years of covering uh, auctions have I ever seen that kind of sell-through rate at a day sale. So that definitely tells me there's tons of confidence in the market right now. Yeah, and as you mentioned, a lot of the coverage is really focused on the top of the art market where prices are headline grabbers. But really, let's be honest, most of the art market doesn't operate at that price level. And interestingly, the really top of the market seems to have cooled a bit this past few weeks. A lot of works in the auctions selling just to a single bid. So do you read much into this, or is the sample size so small that it's not really worth reading much into it? 
Yeah, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see. We're both sort of dazzled by these big prices, and then we also experience sticker stock sort of at varying levels, right? So, you know, what is what is a trophy picture these days, right? And what is the appropriate price to put on that? I mean, there was a time when $100 million was bar none the price to put on it, right? And then it was suddenly maybe it's 150 But then you've got this Da Vinci sort of hovering in the back of our minds that sold for – you know, closer to half a billion dollars. Now, again, that was government versus government. I mean, there's it's sort of a whole different level of ballgame when you're competing against a sovereign nation for a picture. Um, I think that's a whole other area which would be fascinating to explore. I mean, I don't know as an American what it would be like to compete against America, you know, for a picture. Uh-huh. You're probably going to get outbid. But that's essentially what happened with the Da Vinci. So in a way, it's a super fluky outlier. And then in a way, it still does sort of mess with our headspace about what is the appropriate price for a trophy picture. So, you know, the the air is still sort of in flux and thin up there just because it's so volatile, you know, once you're asking over $100 million. I just think that's a number that still wows a lot of people and then bores a lot of people. And so until we can agree what the price is, um, I think you're going to see a lot of volatility up there. And looking back at some of the auction results, what were a few of the most surprising results to you where – when you witnessed them either in person or you saw the results online, you just said, wow. Well, I just think records, I think, ended up breaking for close to three dozen artists. So even though there were plenty that I was, you know, rooting for, like Joan Mitchell, that, you know, Blueberry picture was was great. You know, she definitely belongs um, in the $20 million club. Um, and there were also, you know, really great prices set for a lot of young African-American artists. Um, even Kerry James Marshall, David Hockney broke his record twice. I thought it wasn't surprising, but it was fun to see his record break twice in one night. You know, I mean, there's, that's some of the theater. That's some of the reasons why we go to auctions, right? Is for those the, uh, theatrical moments. Um, so, you know, Avery, uh, you know, a bright young thing, um, sold for six hundred thousand dollars, sort of at her first, you know, outing at auction, which is just insane. I. I think I was sort of just in many, many ways continually surprised that records were being reset for major artists like Matisse, like Manet. I mean, sort of the Rockefeller um, provenance, I think, boosted a lot of these works. One dealer told me it by as much as a third, you know, people were were willing to tack on an extra third uh, for that provenance, and that will probably pay off down the line. Um, but, you know, it's just fun to see these big, big names sort of smash records along with um, along with all, a lot of the little guys. It was just across the board. It was a really fun, exhausting, but a really fun couple of weeks because you got to see just new price levels tested. I, I can't remember a time when we saw such a breadth of the market being tested in, in one two-week round. I mean, everything from English furniture to, you know, 18th century porcelain to modern art to impressionist really i mean really true classic examples of impressionism to post impressionism you know those matisses are great all sort of different levels of picasso and then all the way up through sort of the hot young things that everyone's you know on a waiting list to get so you know i think it was a pretty good test of the market and i think a lot of artists outperformed and perhaps the most noteworthy aspect of the last few weeks of sales was when sotheby's offered several lots donated by African-American artists to fund the Studio Museum in Harlem. We're at this really fascinating moment where museums and collectors are really playing catch-up and trying to collect several African-American artists after largely overlooking them for several years. 
The results for artists like Kerry James Marshall, Barkley Hendricks, and others were really incredible. However, is there a concern of a bubble emerging here? It seems like all of a sudden everyone's rushing in and wanting these artists, even if they aren't incredibly familiar with them. I mean, anytime you're buying with your ears and not your eyes, you're in a danger zone. Uh, so, I mean, in a way, I think they're, those prices are volatile and they will they will change because they just have to. But, I mean, ultimately, I think the artists that are getting some attention, it's well-deserved. Um, you know, Angie Decca, Akinuli Crosby, you know, her, you know, she's selling to museums for around $30,000, and she's selling to collectors, you know, uh, you know, if they can get one, um, in the low six figures. But, you know, to see a painting that doesn't have figures, that's sort of, a real tour de force of her uh, her plant pieces, but it's basically a still life. I mean, for it to sell for 3.4 million, it's um, it's probably really shaken her up <laughs> because that's just a lot of money. Uh, very young in her career. I mean, there are plenty of artists. Um, I mean, that's basically like the most Mike Kelly ever sold a painting, a, a work of art for was around three. So to be at Mike Kelly's stage, sort of as a, a younger artist, is, is kind of a heady, crazy place to be. I mean, Eric Fischel's never sold that much, and there's plenty of artists who over a whole you know lifetime haven't sold this high. Um, for other artists like Barkley Hendricks, Carrie James Marshall, it makes total sense. Um, Glenn Ligon and some of the others have been around for a while. They'll, they have weathered that reckoning and will continue to do so. Julie Murray, too. Again, sort of these are primo established artists at this point. So if museums, you know, haven't gotten works by them yet, um, there's a little bit of a shame on you thing, and you probably better get in line because now the collectors are swarming. Um, in terms of a bubble, though, I mean, does Carrie James Marshall belong at $20 million? Heck yes, absolutely. Does he belong there so quickly, so fast? You know, that's the question is, you're going to pay a primo price for an artist like that at this point when you're competing with Diddy, you know, you just are. And, you know, and at that point you might want to wait, you know, 10 years and try again, but maybe you don't. I mean, Mark Bradford uh, continues to excel, continues to get more expensive. Um, there was a time when there was sort of a fever surrounding his works and it's sort of settled down a little bit now. I think every artist has their own trajectory, and these artists are, I think, by and large, well-deserved. So, you know, if you're willing to hang on to them for a while, it won't be a bubble. If you're looking to flip, it may be. And as you referenced, Diddy, a.k.a. Sean Combs, bought the Carrie James Marshall masterpiece for about $21 million. I thought it was a really exciting moment. The art collecting community is predominantly white, so it was great to see some diversity in the collector base for artworks that are sold in an evening sale. So do people think this is a one-off or could we see more diversity from the art collecting community if we're going to start seeing more diverse artists have commercial and institutional success? Gosh, I'd love it. I, I would love I would love for auction sale rooms not to look so whitey-tidy. I mean, they always tout how many, you know, dozens of countries are signing up to bid. But the, when you go into one of these major rooms, you know, apart from you know, an uptick in the number of Asian uh, bidders in the room. Um, you know, it's still, by and large, the same tribe of usual suspects that have populated these auctions for a long time. So I know that's not happening online. I know there's a greater globalization happening in phone bidding, but it's always great when you look around and you see 
when you see your own city, you see your own people sort of in a room, right? So, I mean, I thought the Studio Museum of Harlem sort of drew out a different crowd that was very much needed, you know, in the auction sphere. There are, of course, major buyers. You know, you've got Joyce Simmons, you have Pamela Joyner, all the Oprah, you know, buys Van Gogh. I mean, she's got major pieces. There are major buyers, uh, and certainly if you look at sort of the board of the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. I mean, you, you've got a huge wallop of, of people there, but um, but it, you know for them to come and play in the contemporary arena, which is so high profile, would be great. And, and many of them are. Uh, many of them are not um, as sort of public about it, but I think you know they would do well to because it benefits the artists and it's great for uh, it's just great for the art world to be as diverse as it possibly can. I think it's easy to give a blanket statement and say everything went bonkers at auction and everything got a high price, but that wasn't entirely the case. Were you able to discern what didn't do well over the last few weeks at auction? Yeah, I mean, some of it's a function of supply, but Warhol had a pretty brutal week. There were several pieces by his that just underperformed. I can see a time when that uh, the Elvis at Christie's would have just gone crazy, um, and it didn't. And there were other examples that sort of just did fair to middling, right? But I feel like he had uh, he had a pretty tough week. Um, some minimalist artists had a tough time. I feel like there were some Dan Flavins and Donald Judds that didn't sell that I thought were actually pretty good examples by those artists that just didn't garner any interest. Um, Phillips had a really tough time with um, some German artists, they, uh, Richter and a Polka, Sigmar Polka and Gerhard Richter, um, that were each priced to sell for at least $12 million, didn't get just any bids at all, really. So that's, you know, that's painful. That's $24 million there for Phillips. For Phillips. And, you know, there are just some artists that, I mean, I'm always fascinated by who we're not seeing, you know, like we're not seeing a lot of those Leipzig singers anymore, you know, I'm sorry, Leipzig painters anymore. We're not seeing Neo Rauchs. We're not seeing a lot of Marlena Dumas. We're not seeing a lot of, I mean, certainly we're not seeing Chris Ophelia as much anymore, some of the other guys. Um, you're trying to just figure out who are we seeing so much of, you know, Sterling Ruby, um, some of the LA artists, even Paul McCarthy, I feel like we were seeing, you know, a butt plug Santa every season, you know, there for a while now. <laughs> we just aren't. Some of that's just, you know, a taste shift and the fashion, the same sort of churn that I think affects a lot of the fashion cycles where suddenly one color is in one season and it's just out the next. I mean, we're sort of a fickle, we're becoming, I think, an increasingly fickle people. So, you know, every season we want someone new. And that means that if you were the flavor of the month a couple of seasons ago, there may be a chance sort of at a breathless pace where you are not, you know, this, the it artist of the season. Do I think the artists who withstand that sort of, you know, um, reckoning will survive i think you know the good ones will but it's always interesting to me who doesn't do well in a season and then when there is so much on offer just sort of who doesn't show up is also i think somewhat telling and lastly when we take a step back and digest exactly what happened over the last few weeks are insiders happy with the sales and how everything went are there any concerns no, I mean, I think when you get a 90, you know, when you're getting the best day sale you've ever had, I think you've, you've got a happy auction house. Um, what what will be interesting is how dealers and the galleries fare over the summer and into the fall. Um, you know, all good things must come to an end at some point, and I think it will be interesting to see. We didn't see a lot of Asians in the room. I've heard since my story came out that there were some Asians that were, 
um, bidding sort of more quietly because there is a little bit, you know, because of the corruption crackdown in China. Now, that may have a, an effect in the future if, you know, sort of this big fish that were sort of being counted upon to swoop up and buy half the evening sale, you know, at the high end. If those trophy hunters, if you will, are bowing out because they're getting hometown pressure um, or they're buying more discreetly, I mean, that can always change the mix. So that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Americans sort of just, they just love this show. They love this game. They love buying art. I, I feel like the American economy is doing well enough. I don't predict that they'll be bowing out at any time. Again, I'm keeping an eye on sort of the effect that sovereign nation buying does have on the trophy market, particularly. I think that sort of skews things to a weird degree. Um, and then, you know, Europeans sort of, they have their thing. We'll see what Brexit does. We'll see what these other countries do. Um, there's always a really fascinating mix um, of people at this game and sort of the extent to which they feel confident to bid sort of often happens, often sort of hinges on what's happening in their own countries. So you always kind of have to keep a global eye on what's going on. Um, but, I, you know, I'm not predicting a crash or anything anytime soon. We, we need a lot of macroeconomic forces. You know, we need Bitcoin to disappear or something sort of really volatile <laughs> to sort of happen, <laughs> I think, to really scare people, at least the heading into summer. You know, the fall is a whole new whole new adventure, but heading into summer, I think we're okay. Kelly, thanks so much again for coming on to the podcast. It's always great having you back on. We appreciate you sharing your insights and reporting from the major New York auctions. And if our listeners don't haven't checked out your writing, they absolutely should. It's always available in the Wall Street Journal and online on the Wall Street Journal's website. And you're also tweeting often about the art markets. If our listeners don't already, they should definitely give you a follow. What's your Twitter handle? On Twitter and Instagram, it's just simply my name, Kelly Crow, WSJ, like Wall Street Journal. Perfect. Thanks so much again, Kelly. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot.